At this time, I'm going to bring up Kurt Bear, uh, best uh, beard in the room, I think, probably. So, uh, uh, top five. So, um, he's going to be reading with, reading for us from uh, John chapter 12. So, uh, if you guys want to grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12 and stand for the reading of God's word. If you are using one of those black Bibles in the pew around you, it is on page 899. Thank you, Rich. So it's a long passage. You guys are going to get tired of standing probably, but um, the passage is John 12, 12 through 43. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world, I will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this Sunday morning, and I'm just humbly asking that you'd help us to see your glory. And so, Father, we pray as Jesus prayed, glorify your name. 
We know that you will, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So one of the funny things that my 16-month-old daughter is doing these days is she's trying to feed herself. So it's a little comical to watch her take her little baby spork and stab it almost into a macaroni, get it close to her mouth only to see it fall to the ground. Or to see her, you know, take some really delicious piece of food and just rip it out of her mouth to behold the glory of what she just tasted, only to put it back in. Or to take uh, something like, say, a sliced banana and just take piece after piece after piece and shove it into her mouth until her cheeks are so full that her only option is to spit it back out and start over. And much like my daughter, with this passage today, I've bitten off more than I can chew, so let's just get started. Um, So I doubt any of you realize this. You know, the the guys in our pastoral training team, they didn't even realize it, but we we basically skipped over almost all of John chapter 12 in our study through the Gospel of John. And that's simply because, uh, you know, we would have preached on this passage maybe a few weeks ago, and then we would have Palm Sunday again, so... So we're, we're kind of going back in time a little bit in terms of our study through the Gospel of John. You know, this is a, a very familiar passage to um, most, if not all of you. And so how do you introduce something that's so familiar to all of us? And the way I'm going to do it is to have us think back or think ahead, whatever the case may be, to where we are right now in the Gospel of John. You know, we just taught on John chapter 18 last week. It was the night before Jesus' betrayal. He had spent time teaching his disciples, washing their feet, eating the Passover meal with them, instituting the Lord's Supper, praying for them. And then Judas comes. Judas, the betrayer, comes with a Roman guard, and they've arrested Jesus. Jesus is confronted by the religious rulers of his day who condemn him. His disciples, who he has trusted with this worldwide rescue plan, have completely abandoned him. Peter's now denied him three times. Pontius Pilate is questioning him. And the crowds outside are crying out, crucify him. And so I put myself in the shoes of one of the disciples, and I ask myself, how did we get here? Like, it was was not supposed to be like this. My mind would go back to just a mere few days ago when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I'd remember that the crowds in Jerusalem were welcoming him into the city, waving palm branches, shouting praise, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king, the king of Israel. And now, crucify him. This is not how you treat a king. How did we get here? We got here. We got to the point of the cross because Jesus prayed that God would be glorified. And God answered him. This is a glory-filled chapter. And if I can just be honest with you guys, I almost feel like I'm standing on holy ground. Like I was shaken during our songs today. And so my hope is that God would help us to catch a glimpse of his glory today. And so here's what we're going to do with this passage. We're going to split it into three parts. We're going to be all over the place. So if you like verse by verse, you're just going to be super frustrated with me. Um, we're, We're going to be all over the place. We'll see the weight of glory, the response to glory, and the path to glory. So the weight of glory, response to glory, and path to glory. And I'm going to move this up here for my convenience. Okay, so the weight of glory. So if we're going to talk about glory, probably a good idea is to ask, well, what, what is it? What is glory? You know, there's, there's obviously more than we can get into in a sermon, but, um, you know, maybe a helpful way to start looking at it is to actually look at the, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament used to talk about glory and the Greek word in the New Testament talk, that's used to talk about glory. And I know that sounds super boring, but if you bear with me for like a few moments, it will hopefully set, shed some light on this for us. So the Hebrew word in the Old Testament translated as glory is kabov, um, which literally means weight or weightiness. The word is meant to convey significance, 
substance, importance. You know, a, a helpful English word for us here is matter. Like matter, you know, something solid. Whoa. <laughs> um, something solid, something you can touch, something you can sink your teeth into, something that, that's real, something you can hold. But matter also means something that's important to you, something that's substantial to you. So when we say something like that, that something matters to us, what we're saying is that it has significance in our lives as opposed to saying, like, oh, that, that doesn't matter. And so the whole idea here is that God matters more than anything else. God's significance is the most significant thing in the world. God's reality is the most real thing in the world. God's importance is the most important thing in the world, and God's glory is the most glorious thing in the world. And if you think about it, just for a moment, like if God truly does exist, how could it be any other way? But that's that's only part of the picture, this weightiness, because his glory is also beautiful. And that's that's kind of how the Greek word sheds some light on us there. And hopefully you'll realize I just made a pun. Um, The Greek word that gets translated as glory, it's, uh, Joey was confused. We'll get to the pun. (laughs) The Greek word that's translated for us here as glory is doxa, from which we get the word doxology, you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Doxa indicates splendor, brightness, radiance, majesty. Is that shedding light on things for you? Thank you. Essentially, what it's getting at is beauty, okay? So the glory and the beauty of God drowns out all competing glories, all competing beauties, And if we view beauty rightly, it ought to point us to the source and foundation of all beauty. It ought to point us to God. So, for example, like a star-filled night has a certain glory to it. The Grand Canyon has a certain splendor. Your spouse has a certain beauty. Each of these things captures your heart in a certain way. But just like the sun in the noonday sky drowns out the glory of every other star in the universe, so God's glory drowns out everything around it. So C.S. Lewis talks about this in a pretty helpful way, at least for me, um, when he talks about seeing the glory of God through the beauty of things that are made. And it's weird, it took place in a tool shed, um, but he talks about this instance in a tool shed where he sees a beam of light coming in through through a crack in the wall, and he goes up to it, places his eye in it, and then he says this, instantly the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-some-odd million miles away, I saw the sun. I have tried to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. I don't mean simply by giving thanks for it. Gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says... What must the quality of the being whose far-off and momentary splendors are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam all the way to the sun. God's glory is the most glorious thing in the world, and God's beauty is the most beautiful thing in the world. And so you have a brilliant theologian like Jonathan Edwards say something like this, God is glorified not only in his glory being seen, but in his glory being rejoiced in. Let me say that again. God is glorified not only in his glory being seen, but in his glory being rejoiced in. But what does that even mean, right? (laughs) Like, what does God's glory even look like? And I would say, for starters, it looks like Jesus, At the end of our passage here in verse 41, John tells us that Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Isaiah, who lived 700 years before Christ, saw Jesus' glory. Like, when did that happen? Well, in the verse that John quotes from Isaiah 6 right before this, um, it'll shed some light on on this for us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 6, verse 1. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips from a people or I, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. John is claiming something incredible here. He's saying that this highly exalted being, the one whose glorious weight shook the foundations of the temple, who, who caused the, the, the very pillars of the t- temple to tremble, the one who is majestic and glorious and splendorous, the one who revealed himself to the Israelites as the great I am, as Yahweh himself. John is saying that when Isaiah sees this, what he's seeing is the glory of Christ. The New Testament actually talks about Jesus in some pretty appalling ways. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The Apostle Paul writing in Colossians chapter 2 describes Jesus like this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created and whether visible or invisible, and in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. So if the glory of God were to enter this room, and supposing we could stand underneath its weight, and supposing we had our wits about us to pull out our phones and take a picture, when we would go to show that picture to other people, to our friends, what they would see is Jesus. So we're going to return to some of these themes later on, but for any of the rest of what I'm going to say here to make any sense at all, what you need to know is that Jesus is glorious and weighty and beautiful and sometimes terrifying. He is the glory of God. Okay, so why am I bothering going through this, though? Why does this matter? Well, it matters because God is more committed to God's glory than he is to anything else. I get this from verses 27 and 28. And Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And Jesus is approaching his hour here. He's approaching the moment of his crucifixion. And he prays to God, glorify your name. And the father's response is this. That's what I've been doing. And I'm about to take it to the next level. You know, in Isaiah's heavenly vision that we just read, these bizarre creatures called the seraphim, who don't show up anywhere else in scripture, just here, like... It says that they're crying out to each other over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In the Old Testament, in the temple system, you have certain priestly people who are holy. You have certain animals used for sacrifices who are holy. You have certain instruments and vessels that are holy. You have certain days of the year that are holy. In each of these cases, the word holy indicates that these things are set aside and committed to serve the glory of God. And what I want to say to you is that God is holy. But he's not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. You know, in in modern times, if you want to make a point while you're saying something, you, you say it loudly. Or if you want someone to notice something in an email, you'll underline it. Or if you want someone to notice something on a piece of paper, you'll highlight it. Or if you're the president of the United States, you send out a tweet and the words in all caps, which is actually a pretty bad illustration because sometimes that doesn't mean anything. Um, but if you're in ancient Hebrew, what you do to, to show importance 
is you repeat it. And in all of Scripture, this is the only characteristic of God that gets repeated three times like this. To quote the late R.C. Sproul, God is not love, 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 and he's not merciful, merciful, merciful. But God is holy, holy, holy. So that's, that's the weight of glory. And I need to ask you guys, do you feel that? Are you feeling it right now? Like how weighty is God to you? Do you have the sense that God is more important than the most important things to you? Or that God is more attractive than the most attractive things to you? Or are you kind of bothered by it? Are you kind of bothered by the fact that God is more committed to himself than he is, say, to you? Well, it's somewhat understandable, right? Like, because when we see people that are like that, they're, let's just be honest, they're insufferable. But what I hope I can help you guys see by the end of this is that God's commitment to God's glory is not only a good thing for God to be doing, but it is the best thing for God to do. And the results lead to the best possible reality for us. But it's easy to miss this. And there are a lot of people in this passage who do miss it. And since we don't want to miss it, let's take a few moments to see how they lost their way. So this is point two, the response to glory. So two pretty common ways that we can miss seeing God's glory is that we can believe in God as a means to an end, or we can believe in God as merely a concept. Here's what I mean. Um, so God is a means to, the, to an end. This is, kind of, this is uh, the crowds and the Pharisees, two examples of this. Now, okay, doubtless, there are some people in the crowds uh, that we read about in verse 12, this crowd that comes out to meet Jesus, who genuinely believe in him. Like, if you look back just one verse in verse 11, it says that many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. These are probably the same guys in verses 17 and 18 who are going around bearing witness, testifying about what they've seen Jesus do. Because when you see glory, you can't help but tell about it. So obviously, like, there's, there's some genuine believers in the mix here in verses 12 and 13 when a large crowd comes out to Jesus, greets him outside of Jerusalem, um, waving palm branches, exclaiming the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna, you know, Jehovah, save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, for context, when you read Psalm 118, it's a song about a king being surrounded by all of his enemies. You know, the nations are surrounding him, chasing him, essentially like a nest of killer bees. Uh, They're trying to find some way to destroy him, but the arm of the Lord keeps saving the king out of the hands of his enemies time and time again. By the end of this song, which is the the part of this song that the crowd is quoting, It's the congregation rejoicing and praising God for delivering their king and delivering their nation. So surely you can put yourself in the shoes of of, someone in the crowd here. Like you look around at the holy city Jerusalem and what surrounds you. Well, you have a corrupt and wicked man like Herod, who's a governor over the region. You have a wicked, oppressive tyrant like Pontius Pilate, who's a leader over the city. You have the Roman guards walking around like they own the place. You see your enemies. You see the nations surrounding you. And then all of a sudden, this Jewish man who's known as a worker of great miracles strides into town. Do you think that there might be some of them there who could care less about who Jesus actually is and care far more about what Jesus can do for them? Do you think that the feelings of nationalism, like, you know, make Jerusalem great again, might be their true priority, and they could actually give less of a rip about the glory of God. I'll rip on people on the left later, too. It's fine. (laughs) How could I be so harsh to these guys? Well, for one, I doubt they realized what Jesus was even doing. Like, I mean, for crying out loud, like his disciples in verse 16, it tells us they didn't even know what Jesus was really doing. So you have these guys who worship God out of nationalistic fervor, you know, like God and country, but in reality, let's just be honest here, it's more like country and God. So their excitement is superficial at best. 
You know, as long as Jesus can give me what I truly want, I'm on his side. And then you also see on the other side of the spectrum, there are those who use their religious clout to get in good with the powers that be. And I'm talking here about the Pharisees. Now, we already know quite a bit about the Pharisees, but to catch you up, they're trying to kill Jesus. But why? Well, to some degree, it's because he's upsetting the balance of power. You see them say to each other in verse 19, uh, they're saying to each other, you see that we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees, simply put, were looking out for their own glory. Their problem is what John identifies at the very end of this passage when he says, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They had a nice little hustle going like a religious clout, persuasion over the people, you know, some handshakes with the Romans to keep the peace. You can imagine, you know, the kickbacks, the bribes, the hypocrisy. Washington, D.C. is not the first swamp in human history. And so the Pharisees are pretty obviously using God. They're using their religion to secure for themselves a place of privilege. They have clout. They have weight. They have glory. And the glory of Jesus is threatening that. So they're willing to believe in God insofar as God is able to give them what they really want. And so let me ask you, is there a way that you can finish this sentence? I'll believe in God and I'll love him as long as fill in the blank. You know, whatever you put at the end of that sentence, that is the weightiest thing in your life. That is what you have given glory to. So is it a relationship as long as God provides this spouse for me? Or is it your kids as long as they stay healthy and they're good and they you know, are, are nice, good people? Or is it your health? Is it your money, your comfort, your ease, your influence? What is the thing that you've given glory to in your life? But that's not the only way to miss the glory of God, to just use him for the stuff he can give you. Another way is to believe in God merely as a concept, and it, it might be a little bit of a stretch here, admittedly, but hear me out. The Pharisees are saying to each other, look, you're gaining nothing. The whole world is going after him, and the very next thing that we read is that some Greeks come and approach Jesus. And so I think the Pharisees see the nations coming to Jesus, and they're just overwhelmed with jealousy. His influence is spreading. So in verses 20 to 23, these Greeks come up to Philip and ask, can we see Jesus? Philip goes to Andrew, and they both go to Jesus and tell him, and Jesus just starts preaching. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he just kind of goes along these lines until he gets to his prayer, Father, glorify your name. And I just sort of love thinking about Philip and Andrew just standing there while Jesus is saying this. Like, I could see Andrew, like, you know, Jesus gets done, and Andrew looks over at Philip and is like, well, you heard the man. Philip is like, okay, yeah, cool, all right. So uh, do do you want me to get them or no? All right, cool. (laughs) So so the reality here is that we know very little about these Greeks who came to worship at Passover. We know very little about these Greeks because the moment they come to Jesus, it's like a trigger is set off in Jesus' heart. The nations are coming to me. It's time for glory. It's time for the cross. But I just sort of get the impression that these Greeks are coming because they have an intellectual interest in Christ. They're coming to him because he's piqued their interest. They're not out there with the crowds praising him as he enters the city, and they're not over with the the Pharisees plotting his destruction. They're just curious. Paul addresses the priorities of ancient Greek culture. He addresses the glories of ancient G- Greek culture in 1 Corinthians 1, and 24, when he says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there's a intellectual curiosity, but there's also religious curiosity. And this can be seen by another part of the crowds. Um, And right after Jesus prays that God would be glorified, a voice booms from the heavens and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And so how do they respond? Was that, was that thunder? 
You know, for, for an unspiritual mind, there's always a way to write off the evidence, the clear evidence of God. They hear the voice boom from heaven, and they enter into a theological debate and immediately split into two separate teams, the angels and the thunder. In verse 30, Jesus tells them that this voice came for their sake and once again tells them about the cross, but instead of humbly receiving what he's teaching them, they enter into another debate. Verse 34, the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the son of man must be lifted up, referring to his crucifixion? Who is this son of man? They hear a voice from heaven. They know about all the signs that Jesus has performed, and yet their response to this is to debate him. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. It's, it's a strange book, but a good book. It's, it's basically an allegorical story about hell. Um, it's a story about the ways that we miss seeing God's glory and therefore miss out on our supreme joy. At one point in the book, he's talking to a guide who's leading him through heaven. And this guide talks about these religiously and intellectually interested people who refuse to go into heaven because they are so preoccupied with all sorts of religious and intellectual pursuits. So he says, this, this guide says this, There are men who are so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself, as if the good Lord had nothing better to do than to exist. There have been some so occupied in spreading Christianity that they have never given thought to Christ. Did you ever know a lover of books that with all his first editions and signed copies had lost his power to read them? Or an organizer of charities that had lost all love for the poor? It is the subtlest forms of temptation that keep us from seeing glory. And so maybe that's you here today. You know, up to this point, maybe the Bible, maybe Christ has been intellectually stimulating to you. Or maybe the moral teachings of Jesus have seemed something worth checking out. Or maybe coming to church fulfills some sort of social and spiritual hole in your life. But up to now, you can't truly say that you've experienced the glory of God. You can't really say that God's reality has much weight in your life. So if it's such a big deal, how do we miss out on it so easily? And this gets us to one of the scariest realities in all of Scripture. God ultimately gives us the glory that we love most. He gives us the glory we love most. And throughout this gospel, John has been showing us the difference between true and false faith. So we have this one little note at the end of verses 42 and 43. I've read it a few times already, but it says, Many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, if you think when, when John is referring to their belief here, he's talking about genuine faith, genuine belief. I'd just point you to John 5, 44, where Jesus says this, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from God? So here's the issue as I see it. We are glory-seeking creatures. We want weight and significance and beauty and radiance, and we want all of that stuff to be part of our lives. However, we want it to be part of our lives so long as we don't have to give glory to our Creator. Now, that, that is the human condition. That is what's wrong with the world. I mean, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in the early chapters of Romans. After spending three chapters describing the, the human condition in its fallen state, he has that famous statement in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. So we want glory but we refuse the weighty, eternal, and radiant reality of God. And instead, we try to mine it out of things that, by comparison, are feather-light, transient, things that are dark compared to the radiance of God. And this is what the judgment of God looks like. He gives you what you want. That's what it means when John says in verses 37 through 40, talking about the people who are rejecting him, says, though he had done so many signs before them, that is Jesus, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not, they could 
not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Like this, this is the judgment of God. This hardening that John is talking about and that Isaiah is talking about, it's judicial hardening. It's the sort of thing that turns a person from saying, I will not believe, to saying, I cannot believe. This is God ultimately giving people the glory that they want. For those who want God, who want his glory to shine on them, this passage says there's honor, there's glory, there's light. But for those who don't want it, there's dishonor, insignificance, and what Jesus calls elsewhere, outer darkness. So if this is how glory gets lost, we should probably figure out the way we find it, right? All right, so this is point three, the path to glory. Essentially, um, the path to glory starts at judgment. It travels through irony, through irony, and it ends at transformation. So judgment, irony, and transformation. So while I have you all meditating on the wonderful realities of God's judgment, um, let's just take a look at this curious little statement that Jesus makes in verses 31 and 32. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Interesting. What is Jesus talking about here? Now. Now is the judgment of this world. Like we're all sort of familiar with the biblical concept of a judgment day at the end of history. But what does it mean that now is the judgment of this world. Well, if you look here, you know, central to this whole passage that Jesus is, is agonizing over here is his hour. And we've seen it over and over again in the Gospel of John. Jesus just keeps saying, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. We get to John chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour he's talking about is the hour of his death. And his hour is now here. What this means is that when Jesus died on the cross, he was judged for all the world's sins. All of them. Like the judgment that should have fallen on us for ignoring the glory of God fell on the one who lived a life perfectly devoted to the glory of God. You also see this curious little phrase that now the ruler of this world, he's talking about Satan there, is cast out. You know, the scriptures teach us over and over again that really the only power that Satan has is, you know, his name. It means the accuser. So he can accuse us and he can intimidate us with the fear of death. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the judgment and wrath of God that should have been poured out on us. You know, when John quotes Isaiah and says, Lord, who has believed our report, he's quoting from Isaiah 53, the chapter about the suffering servant, where it says this, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The crowds at the beginning of John 12 were crying out, Hosanna, you know, Jehovah, save us from our oppressors. When Jesus came, he saved us from ourselves. And he saved us from the judgment of God. When Christ took the judgment day for us, Satan's ability to accuse us ended. And when Jesus gets raised from the dead in about a week here, at least in our story, we're raised with him through faith. He broke the power of death. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is thy sting? When our judgment day fell on Jesus, he absorbed our penalty so that God could look at us as though we had lived every single day of our lives for the glory of God. So the path to glory starts when you see Jesus crucified for you and you're overwhelmed with how beautiful that is. You're overwhelmed by its glory. But as we continue the path to glory, one of the things you'll notice is that it doesn't look very glorious. Even the way Jesus enters Jerusalem is inglorious. He's seated on a donkey, not on a war horse. You know, he's pulling up in a 98 Corolla, not a new Bentley. Like, 
Jesus' whole life story is about the irony of how you gain glory out of this world. You know, it's interesting. In, in Isaiah 6, in the temple vision, Isaiah sees Yahweh, and he, says, he sees him high and lifted up. When he introduces the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, he calls him high and lifted up. And what I want to argue to you is that the heavenly vision that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, when that gets translated into earthly glory, it looks like a suffering servant. Here's what I mean. Jesus says, Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now am I lifted up. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people, and I'm going to say I think it means all of his people, I'll draw all people to myself. And John makes the comment that he said this to show the kind of death that Jesus was going to die. And Jesus recognizes that it's his time to be glorified. It's his time to be lifted up. So what does that look like? Death. The path of glory looks like death. And not just death, but crucifixion. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know, it is the glory of a seed to fall into the ground and die in order to bring about new life. It's the glory of a seed to, fall, to die in order that it might produce more seed-yielding fruit. It is the glory of Christ to die, to be buried, and to be raised so that millions upon millions upon millions of people can inherit new life. In the heavenly vision in Revelation 7, it says this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I said at the beginning of this that God's commitment to God's glory is the best thing for us. And here's why. In God's infinite wisdom, he's determined that the best way for us for him to be glorified, the best way for him to display his glory is to become the lowest of the low, to become a servant here on earth and not a conquering king, and to offer himself for an undeserving people. And this makes sense to us, right? Like anyone here yesterday read the story about that police officer in France who lost his life when he exchanged his life for a hostage that was being held by, by a, a terrorist. Like, what are all the headlines about today? Are they about the terrorist? Are they about the hostages? No, it's, it's about the cop who gave up his life in order to serve others. He's receiving the glory. Now, think with me about this for a moment. When we go back to the beginning of John's gospel, in John chapter 1, um, it says this, referring to Jesus as the word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So you mean to tell me that when God glorifies himself, I receive grace? Give me more of that. Father, glorify your name. And yet, we have to bear in mind now, this is what it looks like to grow in glory. To grow into the glory of God is to have a life that is defined more and more by the cross. Which means that if you want, to seem, if you want that to seem beautiful to you, if you want something as ugly as the cross to become beautiful to you, you need transformation. And that's the promise of the Bible. That's the great promise of the Bible. The Bible tells us that, what's await, that what awaits us as believers is a vision of glory. But not only that, John, in another portion of the Bible, tells us that when we see God as he is, we will become like him. We will no longer stumble around in the darkness of our own insignificance, but we will be wrapped up into the glorious, weighty, radiant presence of God. 
The gospel of God's grace is the most transforming reality in all the world. While you have the light, said Jesus, believe in the light so that you might become children of light. People give birth to people. Dogs to dogs, cats to cats, you all know this. Light gives birth to light. You are the light of the world, said Jesus. Let your good deeds shine before others so that when they see it, they may give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So we are children of light, but for here and for now, we still see as through a mirror dimly. But what we do see changes us more and more as more of light gets in. If your eyes can see the beauty of Christ in the gospel, and I hope they can, and if your ears can hear it, and if your heart understands it, and this only happens by the grace of God, then it will change you. The weight of God's glory will change you. It changes the cross from a fearful and daunting instrument of judgment into the instrument of your liberation and your glory. Now, I want to finish here with two points of application and then a short illustration because I feel like I've been up at 30,000 feet the whole time, which is, sorry, how I do things. Okay, so first off, the gospel transforms our interactions, okay? Um, you know, the gospel I believe in is able to take a gender nonconforming, vegan, bleeding heart, snowflake liberal, and a truck driving, Confederate flag waving, red meat eating, MAGA, MAGA, MAGA conservative, and tell them both to repent of their sins. And it takes both of them, puts them in the same church body, and says, now die for each other. Now, this doesn't come from some sort of humanistic fear of man. This comes from a love for the glory of God. Okay, so that's application one. Has God's glory taught you how to love other people? And I want to speak to those of you now, application two, who are joyless, perhaps even depressed. And I, I want to tread carefully here because we all know there's a million reasons why anyone might be depressed um, but I do want to talk to you about Jesus' words here. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, you may feel like you hate your life in this world. You may feel like that. But what I, what I want to suggest to you is that maybe your problem is not that you hate your life, but that you love it way too much. For many of us, our main problem is not our problems. Our main problem is that we give our problems too much weight. We give our problems too much glory. Now think about the way Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Without preaching a whole new sermon on this, I just... Just look at what you get when you hate your life and come to Christ. Where I am, says Jesus, there will my servant be also. You will be with Christ. With Christ in your suffering, with Christ in your living, with Christ in your dying, with Christ in your lost, with Christ in your gain, with Christ in your joy, with Christ in your sorrow, with Christ in the honor and glory that comes from God, which is the only glory that really matters. And Jesus said that his soul was troubled. He was shook down to the foundation of his being because he knew that what he was about to go through was the most painful thing any of us could possibly imagine, a sense of total abandonment, from his father, who he had known perfectly for all of eternity. This was something God had never experienced. God had never experienced losing God. Jesus was troubled like that so that we'd never have to face that type of rejection, that type of loss, that type of death. And so when you guys grasp this and you understand it and you understand its true glory, and if you let the Lord move in your life in this way, its result is joy and eternal life. And so I want to close with this illustration. Elizabeth Elliot, the, the famous missionary, used to tell this story about a benevolent king who left his castle one day and went walking around with his subjects. Now, 
there was a beggar on the side of the road, and when he noticed the king was coming his way, he got pretty excited, right? Like, got his alms bag ready, and it's just like, okay, like, the king's rich, maybe he'll give me something really nice. To his utter shock, when the king approached him, the king said to him, give me something. What? <laughs> so the beggar, shocked, obviously, but, but this is the king. What are you going to do when a king tells you to give, you some, give him something? Well, you, you give him something. So he sets his arm bags aside and looks around, digs his hand into his pocket, and pulls out three grains of rice. Hands them to the king. King goes off on his way. Beggar grabs his bag, goes off on his way. Later that day, underneath a bridge, the beggar goes and checks his alms bag to see what he had collected. And at the bottom of it, he finds three massive, beautiful golden coins. And he just says to himself, if only I'd given him everything. Will you give him everything? Will you give him your sorrows, your fears, your joys, yourself? I said at the outset that the reason we end up with Jesus on trial and about to be crucified is because the reason we end up with Good Friday, essentially, is because Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. Are you ready to pray that kind of prayer for your own life? Will you give your life over to Christ? Will you behold his glory and say, take me? Father, I can't help but sense for people to dive deeply into the presence of Almighty God, to see Jesus high and lifted up on the cross, to see Jesus high and lifted up. and becoming everything for us. For we ask this in his name. Amen.